and say. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Coffee and Conversations. Um, this week we are going to be following on from the Pete's Pyro seminar last week, which was from the second day of wake where he talked about the profane temple. Um, just for those of you who haven't been here before or haven't remembered, we record these conversations for the people that can't make it and want to listen to it later. If you have any problems, then let me know. Or if there's something that you say and you wish you hadn't, uh, then either you deal with it and handle it or you let me know and I will try and find some magical way of editing that out. Apparently that is possible. Um, more likely, I will just take the whole thing down. So in terms of Wake, it was a really difficult this week to try and give any kind of summary of what Pete talked about because he started off with a summary of day one and then got very excited and jumped about from topic to topic so much that it was very difficult. And then you had the really good uh, interview that he did with Gladys Ganiel, who failed miserably in her task at getting Pete to talk about anything practical. Um, so my best summary is that he started talking about satisfaction and how the human condition is always looking for the thing that will make us whole and complete. Um, and the trauma of, of life comes when we realize that we are free and we are able to make our own choices because there is no big other um, who has a fixed idea of what they want from us, that if only we can please them, then we will find that wholeness and completeness. Um, and so it doesn't make a difference if you pray, if you do tarot cards, if you go to a fortune teller, if you, I don't know, do any of the other things that people do, um, whether you ask Octopus whether this team or that team will win the World Cup match, which seemed to be popular a couple of years ago. Um, and Kierkegaard's take on this was it was called the dizziness of freedom where you feel so disorientated because you realize that you are responsible for the choices that you make in the entirety and you can choose whatever you like but you have to face the consequences and therefore when we face that freedom and when we face decisions we face it with fear and trembling so he then went on to talk about how icon was the technology that he uses to try and alphabetize this trauma, to try and take that anxiety and that feeling and that oppression and that dizziness and to try and come to terms with it by putting it into language, particularly language using liturgy and using um, common terms to try and draw people in and get people talking about it because by talking about it, you bring it out of the real and into the symbolic. Um, and fundamentalism, from his point of view, is not about certainty and being certain, but it's about repressing uncertainty. And it's about having this uncertainty, but not being able to put it into language. It's the failure of alphabetizing, where you just can't cope with the feeling, and so you repress it which means that you have a reaction formation. You can't deal with anyone else talking about it near you because your reaction is over the top. A really good example of this is when you used to hear fundamentalist preachers uh, rail against homosexuality and how terrible a sin it is and how absolutely appalling and shocking and homosexuals are evil and wicked. And then about five, 10 years later, they would come out as gay. Um, because it was the feeling that they had, but they couldn't face and they couldn't put into words themselves. And so they pushed it down and then had this extreme reaction um, in response to that. Um, so we either have that kind of internal fundamentalism or sometimes we can have fundamentalist structures in churches where the person attending themselves doesn't believe and doesn't have that kind of certainty and that need for certainty, but the structure that they attend has it for them. So you go and you listen to hymns, you listen to liturgy all about certainty and the God who will fix everything. You then listen to sermons all about that God and you don't believe it yourself, but you are so wrapped up in the liturgy 
that you have that kind of safety net and it protects you and insulates you from having to deal with the trauma. And so then pyrotheological um, liturgy, icon liturgy, that kind of thing, transformance art allows you to face all of those things bit by bit and gets you to the point where you can face it. Um, which is very similar to when Gladys Ganiel, after talking a lot about the history of the emerging church, um, there was a really interesting point where she talked about how you have psychoanalysis and then the idea of psychoanalysis is you have transference onto the analyst so that you can start to work through these traumas that you have with someone who doesn't react in the way that the person you're actually reacting to would normally react. So if you're talking to your analyst, but really you're talking to your mother um, and the analyst doesn't respond in the way that you would expect your mother to, then you can start to uh, gain a new relationship, even though your mother might not be there. Um, and in the same way, the church can be a way that it, when done differently to the normal structure that we have, you can have transference in that way that you look and you look at the pastor as God and God's representative. So then whatever the pastor says, you react to them as you would to God. And then when the, you start to see the cracks in that pastor and you start to see their doubt and their uncertainty and everything else, then you start to be able to fix that relationship as well. So it was a lot to cover. And we have about 45 minutes, so I'm not sure that we'll be able to cover all of that, even if we just talked through it straight. I don't think we need to cover everything. So I'm really interested to know which parts of that resonated for you, which parts did, were new, if anything, and which parts do you agree with or disagree with? So much to unpack there. <laughs> and I have seen it a couple times, but thanks for summarizing it again because they needed it. Um, I think one of the most interesting things to me is the attachment to an authority figure. And I, one of my most interesting books I've read was um, uh, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And he talks about how some people need that authority figure in their lives and some people do not. And so I, I struggle resonating with this because I've never been someone who did need an authority figure in their lives, but I definitely see the trauma and the angst and the um, pining for an authority figure quite often, um, especially in society in general. Did you grow up in a church, Nicole? Yes, I grew up United Methodist, so like as Christian vanilla as you can get, so. And my mother definitely had this like question everything kind of mentality, so that helped too, you know, so. Did you? I did, but it left me very much with a very strong big other and a very mm -hmm. strong sense of authority figure, but then it didn't help that my mum was also authoritarian. And so mm -hmm. I didn't argue with my mom mm -hmm. um, ever. I didn't um, question her because her authority was absolute pretty much until I was a teenager. And even then it was almost absolute. <laughs> so I had almost the opposite experience. Zizek uh, wrote an essay recently about uh, the term Lenan du Baron, the Lacanian play on the name of the father. Um, and he was talking about how the big other has kind of disintegrated in uh, society, but there's like this reemergence of a new obscene big other specifically in America. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'm just gonna post the the comment in the or the uh, link in the comments here but yeah i struggle with that uh too i think um uh almost like the idea of truth or the idea of 
there's something out there that makes sense and that I can find if I only read enough books, um, that's my authority figure, right? Like there is some uh, knowledge, absolute knowledge, you know? Yeah, the, the um, change in society, um, I've heard the explanation that as the church um, started to decline in terms of authority, you could go perhaps all the way back to the Enlightenment, then people were saying, well, okay, so then who's in charge and what do I do? And that is one theory as to where psychoanalysis came from, is to help people deal with that trauma. Uh, the other theories are it came as to help along with capitalism, this and that. But I wouldn't say it's within the past four years that the church or society has started to internalize the fact like, hey, the Pope's not in charge of everything. It seems like that happened at least 100 plus years ago. But um, yeah, the church used to have a pretty tight wrap on, on everything. And even pre-Christian church, pre, pre-Pope, I mean, Jewish history goes way, way, way back. and. But it just seems like seems like there's been less influence on those um, historically very powerful religious institutions. Yeah, Carl Schmidt, I, I haven't read it, but he argues that the authority of the church is what created uh, political power, like politics in general is modeled after the church. Um, hmm. Usually, so, I see it the other way around. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess modern um, yeah. politics, but yeah, Carl Schmidt, some sort of political theology. Mm -hmm. that seems interesting. That's good. And you know, I, today I was trying to analyze what Pete was saying, taking Christianity out of the picture. And so, I mean, even pre-Jewish, I mean, tribal authority has been around, I'm sure, for, for absolutely ever, right? So it seems to be, and that's not even human, right? I mean, there's <laughs> the, the uh, in, in primate groups, there's, there's the, the authority guy, typically a guy in charge, sometimes a, a female. So it just seems like, yeah, so what else is new? And so, but, you know, how much of this is, uh, purely a Christian experience versus other, well, of course, other religions are there too, but Pete, Pete seems to be jumping all over the place where he's saying, well, you know, it's, it's look at physics, right? Physics shows us and biology shows us and politics shows us. It's like, okay, so I guess we have to go into the church as well, but it seems like those would cover a lot of bases these days with people. It's just hard for me to parse which is this pure, purely applicable to Christianity, or because Beyond's not necessarily a Christian, and so he's, he's just bringing all these different things in there. And it's a, a fun mix to try and sort out what's going on. I think Russia is an interesting case study, and also the election of Trump. But you see, like with the end of the USSR, this kind of refusal of uh, the authority, but as decades of suffering passed, they latched onto authority again and embraced uh, being subjugated <laughs> by Putin, you know? It's like, no, we, we miss our strong leader. And you kind of see that um, with the Trump election also, we need a strong leader. I'll sell you my soul, just protect us. Um, speaking as someone whose family has origins in that part of the world, uh, there's also this like dynamic of what I call like national uh, PTSD or national trauma or something where like they're suspicious of anything that sounds too good. They think it's like, uh, like a trick, like it's not to be trusted. A very deep cynicism that pervades. That's why I like the Russians. <laughs> there was a Russian phrase I really liked. It was like, just when I thought I hit rock bottom, I fell through the ceiling. <laughs> so dark.
Speaking of dark, Angus, how did you feel when Pete said that mysticism is just the gateway drug for most evangelical Christians to get into death of God and pyrotheology in greater depth? I can't disagree with him. Um, I thought it was very narrow, that, but um, my own experience, there's, been, there's all sorts of people interested in mysticism but it's it's for an experiential thing it's for a a recognition thing it's for a new thing it's for a um maybe this is how i can have a place in the community or the church or a role there's all sorts of things rather than sort of um i'm attracted to this because this is how i see this is how I see things. This seems to fit the way I, I function and, and see things. So I, I couldn't disagree. Um, where I do disagree in other times when he's mentioned it is more um, his, so many of his definitions are academic mm -hmm. uh, and so very narrow and, and concise, which is helpful in speaking, but misses a broad spectrum of what I would call the reality. And uh, so much of what he speaks about, I, I see the mystical path as encompassing that, whereas he sees it as sort of step one. Yeah. Um, I see the mystical path as encompassing uh, much of what he talks about, just a different language, and uh, but very much deconstruction and dying and and it, as I've said before, it's only early on that it's very experiential. After that, it's very dry. So, but he's always talking about the addiction to the experiential of the, that the mystic has. So. In your experience, is that, um, do you think it's possible that you just have been attracted to the more theoretical side of things rather than focusing on the experiential or do you think that that is a common feature generally um the people i know and respect weren't attracted to the experiential um as myself, it's not so much attractive to the experiential, but there was these experiences um, that couldn't put language to. And it was like a gradual processing, I guess. So I'm not sure. I would suggest that where I agree with what um, Peter has said is in line with um, a, a large segment of the population that are looking for the experiential and are gravitating to something almost like a drug or, uh, or an entertainment high or what have you. And, um, and so that's where I would, like when I was speaking, explain that the difference between a mystical practitioner and a person that could best be described as a mystic is you know one is truly just the way they're living and the way they're viewing one might define them as a mystic whereas a mystical practitioner is they can't wait to get to the weekend or the end of work to go home and practice some exercise of some sort and and either get some answers or see what happens um you know, it really is a journey of coming to the utter end of yourself. Mm. And yet before the end of yourself, there's sort of the end of God in the sense of any concept or idea or belief or understanding one may have had about God. So, but again, I guess the challenge is, is, um, Peter and many of the participants uh, continuously referring to the theoretical. Yeah. Um, whereas 
um, the persons I know coming from the mystical side, they don't even speak something until not only has it been read and thought of, but put into practice. And in that, a feedback in the experiential, giving it either some validity or, in so, or some invalidity. And I think at times, therefore, in discussions, there's uh, speaking past one another because you know I don't necessarily speak in the theoretical, even though I'm actually using the same concepts everybody else is. Yeah. And so I may be heard that way, but I think some of the difficulties the last year is I don't speak that that way or that language. And uh, so, yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing about like orthopraxy and how, you know, there are some mystics who look for that experience that's akin to a drug high. Uh, but then there are others who it's just their life, you know putting putting it into practice it's like um turning your actual existence into transformist art itself in a way yeah it's the it's the living sacrifice in terms of um most of the persons i've read like saint john of the cross saint Teresa, ruzebrook even meister Eckhart. actually like um it's, it, there's a, a heavy attraction to the real or, or reality. And then, and the validity meaning to, to live it. You know, once you get a glimpse, now to put into practice, now to, to live it and letting everything else go. And um, so it, it's, the, there's not, you don't go too far before it's not necessarily a positive experience. It's considered rewarding in terms of getting grounded in the real, but the experience is one of, you know, dying um, rather than like this blissful um, state. Yeah. I've been very foolish because I, I was a hardcore atheist and hated you know, I was an asshole. And uh, then I kind of had a mystical experience. And I started like, trying to have that again, just reading the mystics, trying, like chasing the high. And it, I was, it, it was an adventure missing the point, you know. Hey, can you hear me okay? Oh, you're a little bit muffled, but we can hear you. Okay. Um, so I was going to talk about a little bit of my experience, if, you, if it's still coming through okay. Oh, of course. Okay. Like, um, I came to higher theology probably close after I was interested in some mysticism, but it was more, more intellectual. Like, I, I wasn't big into the experience. Well, I was into the theory. So it's going to be a little bit different because I think we're talking about, as far as I'm still like Christian mysticism, I was a little bit more heretical, like there was a Gnosticism, like stuff like that. So mm -hmm. it was easy. Somehow I went from that and um, Death of God ended up making, making sense. And uh, Pete's explanation of um, the fall in the garden, in one of his videos on YouTube made a lot of sense to me compared to say Gnosticism started to make um, less sense in the, instead the psychoanalytic interpretation of the fall seems to, to bring some kind of, um, to resonate with me. So I think that was part of it for me. So part of the turning point and what I was interested in was, but, so, yeah. I don't know if anyone remembers that, that, uh, that video or um, that explanation on the, uh, the fall, but it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. It's nice to finally speak too, because I, I haven't really participated except in the chat really um, in these meetings yet, so. Yeah. Well, we're more than happy for you to participate in the chat, but yeah, I vaguely remember that video. It's been a while, but yeah, I can remember him talking about it. Was, it, was that the Oedipal explanation for what happened in the garden? Yes. Yeah, pr prohibition and all that, yeah. 
I think he even mentioned it in this week's wake during the interview with Gladys. Just offhandedly, the eatable aspect of. Yeah. So is everyone familiar with that? Um, so the idea for anyone who's not certain is that the second that God said, do not eat from that tree, then that put a prohibition in the way of Adam and Eve, which obviously meant that the fruit became particularly attractive. And so it was the prohibition that caused the desire rather than it actually being desirable in and of itself. And so the idea is that when we have prohibitions put in front of us, that causes desire. And um, that's why we want things. I also love Kierkegaard's idea of anxiety preceding sin, you know, just the idea that as soon as they were given the choice, then the anxiety sets in. It's uh, So I guess that's kind of the argument a lot of conservatives make for evil. It's like, well, we're given freedom and the necessary result of freedom is evil. But uh, I love the idea of anxiety, just set dizziness of freedom, yeah. So I'm quite fascinated by um, when Pete was talking about the difference between people who are still fundamentalists because they have repressed uncertainty, people who are in fundamentalist structures but don't necessarily believe it themselves, and then people who have come out of it. Where do you? Where would you say you are on that spectrum? for me or anyone but you are part of everyone so yes okay um fundamentalism i grew up in a fairly okay i, I don't know how much how fundamentalist it was pretty fundamentalist um household i've had uh parents you know serious school districts over books you know that sort of stuff um pentecostal sort of um stuff and so um, that's been pretty interesting for me, especially for someone who um, can experience some um, psychosis to be in a household that um, doesn't really believe in uh, science in the same way, psychology in the same way. You know, the, that can be pretty traumatizing, but I think everything turns out all right. So, you know, pretty cool, I don't know. Did anyone else come out of like a family where the parents wanted to be fundamentalist but didn't have like the willpower to do it? So you just ended up with like all the crappy restrictions without any of the uh, like righteous conduct. Virtue signaling. <laughs> No, I, I didn't experience that. My dad's Jewish, but not really practicing. And my mom's uh, very kind of fundamentalist, um, but she's loosened up over the years. And uh, I notice in a lot of churches that people come from maybe a conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical background, and then gradually uh, become more progressive or liberal. But uh, they don't shed the fundamentalism at, at the core of it. So they might go from conservative to liberal, but they're still attached to that idea that they're right or that they know their group is right, you know, fundamentally. I mean, that was kind of my experience. Like I grew up going to a Baptist church and then in college, of course, encountered some wonderful ideas in the secular world. <laughs> Uh, but then for about a decade, I was stuck being a proselytizing liberal and that wasn't really helpful to my relationships or 
life. And I think that's where if you can combine theory with experience, the actual practice is to be like, wait, I might be right or I might not be right, but am I being a total jerk to the people around me? And that's, I think one reason we spend so much time in the theoretical is because it's easier (laughs) than actually putting into practice not being a jerk or not trading one fundamentalism for another, even if it's a fundamentalism of shopping or, you know, whatever, um, raising okay. children a certain way, anything. But the, the real practice is in, in one podcast that Pete recorded in Ireland, he talks about, it's basically just like long, long nights sitting by the fire with a cup of tea or a glass of whiskey and deciding, thinking about your life, thinking about how you want to be in the world. But then, then you have to go out and do it. And it's actually incredibly challenging and often not that rewarding. I haven't made anybody a Biden voter. And there's this part of me that wishes that I could just be out there crusading for all of these things that I'm a hundred percent sure I'm right about. But it really makes me more of a conflict oriented person to act that way and less able to see what I'm projecting onto others. Yeah, I love that. It's interesting for me to think about the term fundamentalism. I was raised Presbyterian, but it was a Calvinist Presbyterian. So there was an elect And I was very clear that I was not on the elect list and I was okay with that because if my mother was going there, that's not where I wanted to be. So I was, I pretty much ended up an atheist Um, and true to structure over um, core uh, faith. uh, My mother was only concerned with my being on the member roster. She didn't care if I went, she didn't care what I believed in. She just cared that I was on the membership roster. Keep in mind that wouldn't make me on the elect, but it would at least be something. (laughs) I think it was more about her reputation. But so um, I stayed in atheism for a long time. And then um, when I was at a law firm, my secretary's son was always in trouble with the law. And so he had a chaplain in jail. She was very struck by this chaplain. And so she wanted me to meet him. And so I met him, I'm open to meeting anybody. And um, I was struck by him, too, because for the first time I saw someone who practiced his faith was not concerned in proselytizing, but was concerned with one's heart. And I found that so refreshing. And I got a call from him not that long after I'd met him. And he said, I need you to do me a favor. I said, sure, Jack, what? And he said, I need you to go to South Africa with me. This was before the fall of apartheid. And I said, "Um, Jack, uh, I'm sorry, do you know who who you just dialed? He said, I know it's a missionary trip, but it's not that kind of missionary trip. He said, I need you to keep me out of jail. And I know you can do that. And so I went. And what I found was, and he, he wasn't proselytizing. He wasn't, we were in Zulu country and it was fabulous. It was a lot like Johnny Clegg's experience of the Zulu. It was amazing. And um, for any of you not familiar with Johnny Clegg, um, he recently died, but he has a book out um, called um, Scatterling of Africa. And uh, he's a musician. It's wonderful. And um, so anyway, long story short, that led me to a theological pursuit. And I ended up in Episcopal Seminary. And um, now I'm not only a recovering Presbyterian, but I'm a, I've, I've evolved out of the Episcopal doctrine. And now I'm very much um, receptive to um, pyrotheology and um, religionless uh, faith. So that's where I am. That's my journey. I love, I love moments where like somebody's own logic backfires on them like that. Like 
with you not wanting to be in the elect. <laughs> Stuff like that always cracks me up. Yeah, I've had that same literal thought that Calvinism might be right, but I was just not elected. And uh, no matter what I do, <laughs> no hope. Um, speaking of faith, um, something I, I got recently was um, I said something on you know, online and family, friends can always respond. I said something about um, that I have enough faith not to believe in hell or something like that. And I had, you know, family comments. Um, one particular person, they just said, disgusting. And I was just like, I don't, I didn't know how to respond, so I didn't say anything, but um, I just feel like uh, uh, hell is a big one for me for exiting um, religion, and um, I looked at progressive Christianity for a little bit, right? I kind of went to atheism for a while instead. Um, then, you know, then some, once in a while I get, I need more, a lot more meaning after that, even, even as you're pretty anti-religion sometimes you start to bounce back into wanting certain um uh, to get back into certain spiritual practices you're like okay getting back into it and then you, you don't really um it doesn't really stay with you sometimes um but anyway so yeah how was a big one for me and so sometimes i still talk about it um but i know that after some research not as it seems, you know, um, anyway, you know, in, in, um, in scripture and that, even though I'm not like a letter, Bible-believing Christian, you know, letter to letter, I know that it's not there um, per, per se, and um, I have enough faith anyway, if there was this God, that they wouldn't send me or my friends there, if that makes any sense. I feel like that, that's, in a certain way, a type of faith in a good God as opposed to, well, I'm just believing um, what I was taught and believing these, what I was taught is faith. Like beliefs, I don't feel like that's faith, you know? Like these particular beliefs, that's what faith is. I feel like faith is, you can, you can, um, I don't know if it's a statement, but you can make it how faith is um, more than just particular sets of beliefs, like I believe in hell, I believe Jesus died for my sins, you know, that sort of thing. That's makes any sense to anybody. Um, that's, that's where I was getting at, but it's hard to communicate sometimes, you know. Makes sense to me. Yeah, Sorry that I'm talking. I think the hardest part for me, like I said, I never had like the authoritarian need, but um, it's the United Methodist Church I grew up in believe that like they really took the it takes a village to raise a child thing seriously. So to this day, I have three or four couples that I call my parents, you know, and that's a good thing because my own parents weren't great parents. So the church was my family. It was my community. It's where we knew everything. Um, so when I realized that I was no longer Christian, it was really hard. It was so much of my identity and so much social circle that made it very difficult to leave. Right. Um, to the point where I stayed going to church for a long time. And it was funny. We were in Bible study today and they were talking about nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, not N-U-N, uh, and they're like, it'd be really interesting. I wonder why nuns come to church. And I was like, well, I'm one. And I can tell you, like, I value the community. I value the morality. I value things like that. And I'm interested in religion. So I don't mind studying the Bible, you know. Um, but they were so shocked by that. And some people wrote me emails afterwards. You were so brave to admit that. And I was like, I don't think I should need to be brave to admit that, quite frankly. But even down to, like, I'm a singer and uh, I love singing some Christian music. And like, I remember looking at my, um, because yes, I still buy music. I, I stream sometimes, but I still buy it. I'm like, should I keep all these Christian songs? Is it okay for me to continue to sing along with Christian songs? You know, 
And so that was the weirdest part for me, I think, was not giving up the authority, but giving up the community and identity. I identify with that so much. Thank you for saying that. Did you say you were a nun? I'm having a hard time hearing. It was N-O-N-E, N-O-N-E. They were talking about the people that are labeled nun, N-O-N-E, nun. So like, don't believe in anything type thing. Oh man, that's, I like that so much. I'm, I have the problem of believing anything that anyone tells me because I was indoctrinated to trust authority figures. And the problem is that all the authority figures that in my life that were men took advantage of that in one way or another, whether it was sexually or otherwise. And I, I don't know if that's triggering to say, and I'm sorry, I'm trying really hard to remember trigger warnings. Uh, sometimes I have no filter and I'm sorry. And you guys probably saw that it's nuts. But um, the problem that I had was that once I rejected God, well, I went through three years of a toxic relationship. And then I just got out about a month ago. But the problem is that my spiritual gifts returned to me. And so I was like, well, maybe I'm a witch. Like, cause I can see people's colors when I meet them. And what's most terrifying is when someone doesn't have a color and most Christians I've met, they don't have colors. They're blank and you can see their eyes are veiled like so obviously and uh, and it's terrifying when you meet them it's like you want to vomit it's like where is your soul do you care do you love jesus or do you just love the doctrine because he's not the doctrine he's something else i don't know what maybe that's a form is. of synesthesia pardon maybe that's some kind of synesthesia going on what does that mean? Can you explain? Uh, it's where your senses get like crosswired. So, for example, there were composers in the past who could like, when they played notes, they would see colors. That's a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been very, am... Billy Eilish is like that. It's not just past. And Jimi Hendrix, lots of them. All. Yeah. I'll type it in the chat so you can look it up for yourself and see if maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do, I'll do that after this. Um, the problem is, oh, wait, am I on mute? No, I'm not. Um, the problem is that I've been having seizures <laughs> and, and I've never had them before. I started having grand mal seizures a week ago and I, uh, it's hard for me to read. And so sometimes it's fine and sometimes it's not. And I'm trying wow. to learn how to be safe in my own body. <laughs> and that's all I'm trying to do. And, and I need teachers. And that's why Peter Rollins was really helpful to me when I first moved up to Oregon. Um, and his work was very impactful to me. But it was like I just saw another male figure. And, and then I was like, fuck that. Sorry, language. Um, yeah, I, I just, I keep seeking people to tell me how to feel. And, and, then, and then I got in a relationship that was incredibly toxic, but it was with an anatomically female person because I trust women more than I trust men right now, if that makes any sense. Re regarding the seizures, might I suggest a neurologist? I feel like that's yeah. a pretty good authority figure to let into your life at the moment. I already have a neurologist. I've been seen for a year and a half, just the seizures. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I let them know, but I'm in Arizona right now and my neurologist is in Oregon, so. I was gonna say, and I, I know we're all aware of this and there's a lot of Pete's work um, in psychoanalysis and obviously Beth, like you're aware too, but um brain research um, like shows that before the age of six, we just, we make millions more connections basically constantly than we ever will again in our lives. Um, 
and for everybody, it kind of fades out at a different, you know, it's not like on your sixth birthday, your brain just slows down. Um, but somewhere between like six and eight, your brain starts cutting back and just using those connections that are the most reinforced. And th that's a positive and it's a negative. Uh, I think it just means we all have to give ourselves a ton of grace. Those those concepts that were introduced to us, like hell, or Beth, in your case, like men are harmful, um, you know, that you learned very, very, very young. It is, it is always going to be us um, fighting that wiring, the very, very earliest habits that we learned actually physically in those little neurons and synapses in our brain. And that's, you know, that means we can try our hardest to do better for the children that are, that are under age six now, but it also just means that we have to um, give ourselves like a ton of grace. Nobody learns a foreign language at age 12 like they would at age four. That's just like one example. Um, and nobody is gonna unlearn terrifying concepts of evangelicalism. <laughs> um, um, it, at age 20 or 30, um, if those were some of the very earliest and first and deepest and most reinforced things. And in Nicole's case, um, that sense of community, family, um, you know, social, economic support, um, people to make you a meal when you have a surgery, that's always gonna be there too. There's, um, and, and I'm not saying that we should not take personal responsibility for um, our habits, our ways that we interact with other people, but just that we're only just beginning to understand in neuroscience how much happens in the brain. Um, for a long time, kids were just thought to be these little blank slates and like through all of history basically. Um, and we're only just beginning to understand like that that isn't true. Um, things like trauma, abuse, damage, the amount of gray matter in the brain, people then grow up with less frontal lobe ability. Um, it's super fascinating stuff. And then on an individual level to just keep in mind, like, this is something I learned super young. Of course, I'm not able to totally deal with it in a, in a healthy way. Or maybe I need to say on social media once a month, that I have enough faith to not believe in hell because I am still listening to that, that three-year-old inside of me that learned that hell is absolutely real. And when you go there, you just burst into flames forever, um, which is a terrible thing to teach children, in my opinion. But anyway, that's just a little like brain, brain comments. Yeah, I love that. And I think uh, in a metaphorical sense, the original sin is kind of like that. Um, if you look at the Adam and Eve story or you look at original sin as that kind of trauma or bad choice or prohibition or whatever that we learned at the beginning and then stays with us and defines, you know, in a psychological sense, our, our actions in a way. Picking the fruit from the tree of knowledge, <laughs> that's our uh, original sin. And we're always going to make mistakes and fuck <laughs> Yeah, thank you. I, re I really enjoyed those those uh, comments and they're, um, they're appreciated. Like, and a uh, frontal lobe, like uh, gray matter, that's uh, corporal punishment is related to that too. And that's that's been a big one for me, been one big one for me for my life. And um, everyone around me, most people um, don't get that. So, um, and like, like the whole thing, like I have a good relationship with my parents, thank goodness. But um, you are doing some, there's something that is not entirely being done right when, you know, when you're, if you're a kid and you um, are having nightmares about you know, that, that sort of thing, then it's not probably, it, well, not probably. It's, you're not, there's something wrong there. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Uh, not to harp on, you know, to say like, oh, trauma, trauma. This is my trauma or anything. But um, I, I just, I remember that was something 
that happened when I was a kid. So, um, so yeah. So I'm very aware that this has taken quite a heavy turn. Um, and I know that we're coming vaguely towards the end of our time. I'm happy to keep going for a little bit longer. Um, but I just want to um, acknowledge what's been said and what's been shared. Um, and I don't want to minimize that. And I don't want to uh, move on from it quickly in a way that doesn't acknowledge that. But I also want to uh, appreciate the fact that we've got limited time left and I don't want this to just end talking about those kinds of topics if there are other things that people want to talk about before we finish. So particularly, yeah, I, go on Angus. I was hoping to talk some about his three sections on transformance art. And um, what I really enjoyed even though I don't really appreciate transformance art so much, but in sort of, I skipped the music sections and just went from section to section. And um, I just, I like the, the sort of underlying Christian message that was there in terms of the theme being uh, transformation and um, not um, how to change, how to improve, how to progress but there's still sort of the miracle there he was sort of pointing at in terms of a, a transformation uh suddenly getting it and one's perception and perspective flipping and in that sort of a life being transformed whether it be in a small way or a large way so i really appreciate that and when you spoke your summary um I forget what you said sort of the takeaway was um, for that day, but uh, my takeaway was uh, there just seemed to be this ongoing theme of coming to accept, you know, not only that I don't know, but uh, I can't know and nobody knows, mm. including even some, some big other. And that just seemed to be the theme. And I just really liked that. That's, that's been significant for, you know, more than 20 years in my life. And I just like the subtle way it was sort of intertwined along with the, the transform, transformative messages um, suggesting, you know, you, again, you just don't have to be locked in to anything, even your, perhaps your own biology or whatever, you know, it's, you know, who knows, you know, who knows? I don't know. So I think. Thanks, Kate. Yeah, I did miss that bit. And I think that is a really important thing to mention about this idea that, yeah, the big other is also self-divided. And it's not that there is a secret Gnostic knowledge out there that if only you follow these disciplines and principles, then you too can become whole and complete. If only you buy this book um yeah absolutely um did anyone else have any other takeaways that haven't been covered just a quick note on the profane i love that idea uh the sacred into the profane thomas altizer writes about that a lot and i was thinking what better encapsulates that than the idea of christ the sacred literally becoming the profane, the dirty, stinky Christ, hairy, you know, the immortal God literally dying, being tortured to death. I mean, that transition, that's transformation. That transition to me is just powerful. Joe, you were gonna say something? Uh, I figure I get called on. Thanks, Angus. Um, I was just going to say we've been we've been tiptoeing back and forth between the theoretical and then the practical, um, which is really interesting to me. And I really like um, what Nicole was saying about being in the church. Was it being in the church, but not of the church? Can we say that? I don't know. It's weird, right? <laughs> um, 
so so just this idea of like and i think when pete talks sometimes he leans towards okay there is no authority there is no ultimate authority figure so it's like it's just kind of like okay scatter my children like it's it's kind of um but i think there really is something to be said for community um and what that means sort of above and beyond authority and i don't know if any of you read um have read cast have any of you read that by isabel wilkerson it's about racism it was on the um like oprah so so you know it's good it's on the oprah list um but but um uh she talks about um hierarchical structures in there a little bit and how racism screws all that up and we, we go to the animal kingdom we see uh, functional hierarchies working. Um, I don't know. I just want to throw that out there because I thought that was kind of interesting that hierarchies exist on this level that's instinctive and not necessarily social. Um, it's just worth throwing into the mix. That's all. Yeah, I lived in a commune and there was no like authority figure, but there was like an organic hierarchy that kind of developed, which wasn't about power, but kind of responsibility. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in the community aspect. Um, I was talking to Kate earlier. She's saying, well, you can only do this alphabetizing in community. You can't do it yourself. You can't read Pete's book and do it by yourself. I'm, I'm maybe misquoting her, but you know, in the same way with an analyst, you have to see an analyst, you can't fix yourself, right? There has to be something, at least one other person, community might be better. So I'm, I'm intrigued if he can add some more color on that, because then I think maybe all he said was, and you have to do it in community, but I need more details around that. Because it seems like I do it myself. It seems like I can read Pete's books and get a clue and, make some progress, but I'd also think that um, the Transformers art stuff seems to be Pete's version of somewhat practical, somewhat applied. <laughs> and to the extent he's saying he's, he's only allowed like to be speaking for maximum five, 10, 15 minutes at an icon thing, then they want that theoretical stuff off of there. And then they go practical with um, the Transformers art experience, which is, I'm not sure if it's communal, I'm not sure how it differs from a church experience, but then in this wake segment here, he is saying, well, he was challenged by Gladys. It's like, yeah, this stuff you did in Ireland was phenomenal, but there's no way mere mortals around the world could do that. And he says, yeah, I think what I mean now is we play some music, we do some, some, something, and then we sit around and talk a lot. He's like, okay. <laughs> but that, I mean, it sounds pretty practical, right? And it's supposedly not talking theoretical. So it sounds like group therapy in some sense, right? Without a no, it 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 sounds exactly like what the disciples yeah. did, like all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like go out, feed some hungry people, help some homeless people, and then just like drink some wine and talk about everything that they didn't get forever that we don't get that we're just trying. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And Colleen, I completely agree with you. I moved to Finland when I was not four and my son was three. And the difference between our ability to learn Finnish was quite different. It was a big change for both of us, but he just picked it up so very quickly. And I have been to numerous language classes and worked my socks off. And he seems to have just picked it up effortlessly. Um, I think I'm finally at the point where my official language structure is better than his. Um, and my um, vocabulary is slightly wider, but that's only because I think it would be if I would, if any adult was compared to any child, you know, in the different areas that I need the language. Um, but it has taken five years to get to this point. Um, so yes, I agree, it is much easier to pick things up as a child. <laughs> um, and Joe, I completely agree with you as well that I don't even know where I sit on the kind of in church, out of church thing right now. Um, for those of you that weren't around 
for AFL last year. Um, I did that for the first time last year and went through an absolutely whacking great death of God experience, knocked me for six, uh, took me about a year to recover, just in time for the next AFL. It was great. Um, but I kept going to church uh, because uh, I, when I moved, I ended up getting a divorce and my only practical support network was from the church. I didn't know anyone outside of the church and my whole family are in the UK. So the only people that I know here were in that building on a Sunday. And so it wasn't an option for me to stop going um, because I needed people. And that sounds awful, but it's true. <laughs> Um, and so I stopped going when COVID closed the church and everything went to live streaming. So I've sort of left, but nobody knows yet. Um, and I still meet people for coffee regularly and I still speak pretty good Christianese. So I don't think they've noticed yet. Um, they had me preaching last November and I gave them a lovely sermon on Tillich um, and how, how we get, can't know God. And we don't, we shouldn't even pretend to know God because we've got no idea. Um, that was about as out of there as I could afford to get. How First many, time. How many I, Bible verses? <laughs> oh, yeah. I did the classic thing where when you're bringing in something that's outside of normal thinking, you bring a million and one Bible verses just to support your argument. Um, so I scattergunned it from the whole Bible. Uh, so I looked like I really knew what I was talking about, but in fact, it is was there just... a recording of this? <laughs> yes, there it. is. <laughs> but it was Discord. also live translated into Finnish and Spanish um, at the same time, so it was very slow. <laughs> um, hey, can I say something? I yeah. don't want to interrupt. It's just you're making me laugh so much. Okay, so I growing up, sorry, cigarette. Growing up in the church. I was always asked to be in leadership roles, which is hilarious because I literally know nothing. Um, but when I was in high school, I was asked to do a sermon on hell, which is hilarious because that's the thing that hurt me the most about the church. And I tried so hard. I looked up so much information and I basically ended up standing in front of all my little high school buds and going, revelation isn't real take it metaphorically and I was basically preaching it for like an hour and and I look back and I'm like I was so stupid I don't know I don't know I was just researching things and like spewing out nonsense and hoping that it made sense and so many people came up to me and were like oh you touched my heart you blessed me so much and I was like no I didn't I was just shooting the shit out of my I'm sorry stuff out of my mouth and and I hope it's stuck and uh and I should not have been preaching because I was a very abused child and somehow the church managed to make me talk about the worst part of it so anyway it just makes me laugh well I'm glad you can laugh um that sounds like it was really tough um I think that would be tough for anyone to talk about it particularly if it like in my opinion that's a topic that only the pastor should be talking about anyway unless there is someone with a very specialist interest uh in which case that's just worrying anyway but um like that's literally what they get paid for to deal with those really difficult topics uh sorry for anyone who got confused afl is atheism for lent which is the lent course that pete does for six weeks before easter um, where basically the idea is that tr Christian tradition, you give something up for Lent and then it comes back at Easter. In atheism for Lent, you give up God. Uh, you give up your faith temporarily for six weeks to really dive deep into um, atheistic critique of religion and faith and Christianity in particular in order to see whether there's any truth in it that we can use to strengthen our faith. So naive little me, um, having gone through divorce, breakup, 
single motherhood thought great my faith has been shattered to pieces I've only got this tiny little foundation that I'm standing on best thing I can do is completely shake it and I'm sure it will be fine because I'm absolutely certain that God exists and is real and is there and so I will do this course and it will strengthen me and I will come out the other side stronger than ever and it took me two days before I just collapsed like a pack of cards um yeah and the rest of the six weeks was a bit of a blur slightly traumatized um but I think that's kind of Pete's plan with it um secretly uh he definitely definitely missold it I've asked for my money back a number of times and he's always refused um but it's really good and I highly recommend it <laughs> so having waffled on um it's now quarter two does anyone have any final thoughts before we wrap up all right well thank you all very much for joining us today and for putting up with the awkward tech side of things just to let you all know that next saturday we have the bonhoeffer course starting you should have had a Patreon note come through in August, was it? Um, that had the links and everything else. I will try and get it sent out again on Discord and Facebook. And I will try and persuade Pete to send it out via Patreon again this week. Um, there's basically one website that you go to that's got all the reading material for each week, so you don't need to buy anything. And there's a video to watch well, it's supposed to be a video. It's actually just a blank video with audio. Um, so you listen to the audio and then we'll meet on Saturdays for five weeks to talk about it. Uh, there is a break at the end of October so that Justin can do a horror movie exposure discussion on the 30th of October because apparently people like that stuff. Um, and I will be giving that a miss. And... <laughs> Other than that, next Sunday at 11.30 a.m. Pacific, we will be back, hopefully at the normal link, otherwise there will be a new link, um, to talk about Coffee and Concepts with Pete. And I would love to tell you what the topic's going to be, but I have a feeling that he'll do a bait and switch like he did last month, and he'll tell me that the topic's one thing and then do something completely different. So I won't even bother. So you'll have to come and see if you want to be surprised. So I will see you. We still have happy hour at two tomorrow. Yes, I'm so glad. Or, I'm sorry, whatever time. Yes, tomorrow we have happy hour at 11 a.m. Pacific. Pacific. Uh, okay. And that is just a chill out time. The link that is pinned and works. Hopefully. Bill. Do you have a. Do you have two minutes after we close this, just to chat them? And I'd wanted to respond to your comment earlier, but we moved on to a new topic. Yeah, no problem. Okay, thanks. Okay, so other than Bill and Angus, I will see you all either tomorrow, Saturday, or next week. Have a good week. Bye. 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 Bye.